0: Is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village.
1: On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe inspiring, but can also have a dark side, and maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this episode, we're joined by Loretta Whitesides about her citizen volunteer work with Mirakind, who are working to test essential workers in Los Angeles for COVID-19. Dr. Addison Colleen Stark is back this week to talk to us about his op-ed for Scientific American, where he makes the case for investing in innovation to help with the recovery from COVID-19.
2: Not only has our broad-based economy ground to a halt, but in particular, innovation has as well. And while there is still some hope that through directed recovery and stimulus, we can get the economy going again, one challenge is the fact that the impacts of not doing research and innovation can play out over decades because it's innovation that's done today, scientific discoveries today that lead to the formation of companies tomorrow, that then can be the industries that are a major part of our economy in a decade or so. So this could be a big economic challenge.
1: More with Dr. Addison Colleen Stark in a bit. But first, friend of the show, Dr. Peter Eckersley is back. He's an AI ethics and privacy researcher who is the convener of the stop-covid.tech group to talk to us about contact tracing and how important it is in slowing down the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Listen to this. Tell me about the stop-covid.tech group.
0: So this is an informal group of technologists, epidemiologists and public health professionals that we got together as a result of some debates that I was having, honestly, with friends who are epidemiologists about what we could do, how much we could do to stop the coronavirus from spreading everywhere and exacting an enormous toll on countries all over the world. I'm naturally a hybrid optimist and pessimist kind of person. And so I said, I think there's a lot we can do. And Particularly, there's a lot that the tech companies can do. And so we sat down and we, we wrote a to-do list of things asks for specific tech companies. And this was early in March as the, the wave was starting to hit the United States. So we had things like requests to Uber and Lyft to... Both protect their drivers and their passengers, ensuring they were with hand sanitizer and doing risk assessment about whether they should be offering service everywhere and how to do that safely. Giving Amazon and eBay the request not to allow profiteering on personal protective equipment and instead to try to allocate supplies of those scarce masks and gowns and hand sanitizer first and foremost to healthcare workers and other very vulnerable groups. Also, I guess Amazon and companies that were. We're running large delivery and logistics operations the ask to ensure that their staff had paid sick leave and the ability to take time off without which, uh, like everyone, is just much less safe. Giving the social media companies the request to mitigate the worst misinformation that was spreading, but also to proactively seek out and provide really relevant mitigation information to communities so that they could coordinate quickly when there were opportunities to act. Contact tracing is this process whereby when someone is diagnosed, you go out and figure out who they might have exposed in the days leading up to that diagnosis and then go and warn those people, ask them to isolate, help them get tested and get treatment, but prevent further transmission, further exponential growth from the cases that you can spot. And so we we put that letter together and it was amazing after we put it out, you know, many of most of the things on the list happened really to a fairly large degree and very quickly. I don't think we can necessarily take any credit for that. I think a lot of this thinking was happening in a lot of places simultaneously.
1: Before we get into contact tracing, let's talk a little bit about privacy.
0: It's unfortunately the case right now that lots of companies and organizations in the world have access to our mobile location data from our phones. Lots of apps collect it, sometimes People don't even fully realize that's happening. Lots of those companies sell that data. The phone companies sell that data. The phone companies have lower resolution versions from their cell phone towers for the most part than the, the operating system, which is more accurate because it has GPS and uh, Wi Fi triangulation. That's never a thing that people got to really make an informed collective policy choice about. And I think there's a lot of latent unhappiness, rightly so. We, we don't want these companies that have our location data right now to have it. I don't want my phone company. To have that data but i would be okay feeding my location data into an anonymizing encrypted algorithm that just provides really private notifications about potential exposure events to also remember that like this isn't a proposal for governments to get data they don't have already and it isn't a proposal for companies to get data that they don't have already it's really you have to measure your privacy harm by how much difference it makes. And I think that's a really different frame of mind than like, oh, all forms of data usage must be bad, which is, I think, the, a place that especially a lot of the journalists reporting on these stories have gone to. They've wanted to tell this story about contact tracing versus privacy. And I think, unfortunately, that's a, a story, if it keeps being told, it's just going to cost a lot of lives.
1: So in the last week, Google and Apple announced that they were going to work together on a contact tracing app. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Well, this is great news. It's something that in the stop Tech campaign, we specifically asked Google and Apple to think about doing together because uh, of all the entities in the world, those two are really uniquely positioned to both get software onto all of our phones into all of our pockets that can do a kind of privacy-friendly anonymized notification of potential exposure thing. So if you get diagnosed with COVID-19, your phone can anonymously warn the owners of of other phones that have been near to you. And that could really help reduce the spread of COVID-19, make it possible to open economies sooner than they otherwise would be and, and save lives.
1: Right. And they specifically call it privacy preserving. So could you talk about what they mean by that?
0: Yeah. So the, the essence of the protocol here is that each of our phones, if we opt into doing this, and it would be opt-in based, I think, if we opt into doing this, our phones would emit a random series of numbers. They're essentially a way of of sending notifications backwards and forth between the phones anonymously. Uh, And the phones can keep a record of which other numbers they see nearby via Bluetooth. And if uh, another phone is seen within, say, two meters for, say, more than five minutes, perhaps you could have the app keep a note of that. And if one of those uh, phone owners later says, oh, I've been... I've tested positive for COVID-19. That can trigger a alert or notification that's sent to the random number of the other phone, and that person would get a notice on their phone that could be something like, "Someone phone in your pocket. I heard from en- from another phone that you were near someone who's now being diagnosed. Please make sure you go into isolation. If you get uh, any symptoms, you should definitely get tested. Maybe even in general, you should get tested. But you should." presume that you've been exposed. Now, if you'd like to talk to a, a public health worker, let me know and I'll schedule a call. So you could have this app that doesn't reveal anything about you to any government agency, but it gives you the option of being warned of exposure. And it allows you, if you want more information or you know are confused about what the message means, or need to get an appointment to get tested or need counseling, you can talk to a, a public health worker, but there's no obligation to do so.
1: Right. And so they mentioned that this was sort of a two part release strategy that at first they were going to do it as an API that would work with existing apps. Right. And then they'd eventually roll it into the operating system. So there
0: have been dozens of these apps that are trying to figure out how to do anonymized exposure notification, including some that are open-source projects and others that have been launched by by governments like uh, the Singaporean government. They've also now open-sourced their app. But those projects have encountered problems, compatibility problems, particularly between Android and iOS and issues with inherent sort of ways that iOS limits what apps can do over Bluetooth if the app isn't open and in the foreground. And so what you had was a situation where it was really only possible to make a good exposure notification app if people literally kept the app open all the time. And that's obviously not a realistic thing to do. People aren't going to walk around with this this app open 24-7 or you know, when they get on the train, when they, they're in public places. And so with this update that's, that's coming in May, it'll be possible to make apps on Android and iPhone that can do this kind of thing. And then later in the year, there's some suggestion that, that Apple and Google will, will perhaps find ways to help get these apps into everyone's hands if they want them.
1: In a lot of these scenarios, it's me as the person saying, oh, I've been diagnosed with COVID-19. Is there any concern on your end of trolley type folks that are just would say like, yeah, I've been. Yeah, I've been diagnosed with COVID-19. Notify everybody who's open to this.
0: This is one of the parts of the anonymous contact notification or anonymous exposure notification process that Apple and Google are trying to solve right now. So if you want to do this kind of notification, an app can make a choice. Is it going to trust the user to say, hey, I've tested positive? Or would you have some kind of data flow that goes from testing laboratories or public health agencies into these apps and different users and different places may may come down differently, probably for anything that gets really large scale, you're going to need to authenticate the the positive tests. If an app's only used by a relatively small number of people or in a relatively small geographical location, perhaps everyone's going to behave well. But if you really want this thing to scale and you kind of need it to in order to work effectively, then you want to make sure that people can't just make up the fact that they are positive in order to create false alarms. This is a really constructive step by Apple and Google. It's using the position they're in to take action at scale that could make a real difference to countries trying to contain the coronavirus. And also it's been done quite thoughtfully. There's been a lot of effort put into the privacy analysis here, the the privacy technology. The piece that's still remaining to be done is how you fit in the balance between is this something that should be a, a tech first solution? Probably not. It probably makes sense to still rely on Disease detectives, contact tracers, people who work for local governments and go out, or state governments and go out and figure out who's been exposed, and then use the app to close the gaps to make sure that the tracing happens as quickly as possible, as thoroughly as possible, and with as many privacy protections as possible. It used to be that when you had pandemics of new dangerous diseases, they would just spread around the world and claim a lot of lives, and there was nothing you could do about it. We're in a different situation with COVID-19, where the whole planet has acted really very quickly and organized responses to mitigate the harm. But it's also a huge challenge for us to be wise and plan wisely around these hard technology questions and these hard global coordination questions that arise in this process, like, I think there's a chance we'll get it right. And there's a chance that you'll see sophisticated contact tracing happening even in the United States or in a lot of parts of the world to really save a lot more lives. And and we're already saving a lot of lives with the levels of sophistication and coordination that humans have brought to bear. And so I think the analogy to past crises shows you that in some ways, Uh, Humanity is really able to rise to a challenge here in a way that's inspiring.
1: That was Peter Eckersley talking about Apple and Google's pledge to work together on contact tracing the privacy concerns around it, but also about how necessary this is to slow the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. It's important to note though that contact tracing requires more and better testing which is something we're still struggling with here in California and in the United States as a whole. Up next, Loretta Whitesides is here as a citizen volunteer. She's been helping Mirakind get their COVID-19 tests out to essential workers in Los Angeles. Listen to this. One of the greatest issues in LA and really around the country, quite frankly, is the ability to get tested. Could you talk about Mirakind and how they're helping to try to bridge the gap in testing?
3: Yeah, we're trying to complement what the government is doing. The government's really focused on testing people who have heavy symptoms. I mean, you have to have like the most severe symptoms to warrant being tested in the hospitals or in the drive through centers. But we see that to flatten the curve, we really need to help identify the people in the essential workforce, people who can't stay at home like I am, just running everything from my living room, people who need to go to work every morning, people who work at the grocery store or the the pharmacy or in nursing homes, nurses, and, and front. we call them essential workforce. And so, So if any of them are positive, they are people who are going to be spreading this virus to more people unknowingly because they have no symptoms. Many young people especially can be carriers of the virus and not have any symptoms at all. And that's why the virus is continuing to spread. So we think we need to be doing another effort testing the essential workforce to identify people who are positive and find ways to support them and to being able to shelter at home as well.
1: How does their testing work? Because, you know, we've heard these long times of there's a classic example of you get tested and then it takes six,
3: 10 days to get the results back. The reason why it's taking so long, it's twofold. One is that some of the testing sites are still using pen and paper to gather your information and having to do the data entry and track all the samples that way. It's very labor intensive. Another reason is a lot of the tests are going out of state or to this labs in San Luis Obispo that just have such a backlog that they can't get to the tests fast enough. To run the samples in our lab, The sample prep machine takes about three and a half hours, and the PCR machine itself takes about 90 minutes. So you could do it relatively fast. We are advertising 24 to 48 hours just to account for, you know, the same issues. Actually we don't do things on pen and paper. Ours is all digital. So we're excited to help with high throughput by going digital and having a web application that doctors can use to input all the information and the lab can track the samples digitally with barcodes. But yeah, if you have three thousand samples coming in for the day, that's how much we can do a day. So you if you're last in line, it'll take twenty four hours to turn that around. So that's why but but that's still twenty four to forty eight hours is still better than like you were saying, a lot of the tests are coming back, so that's good. So this is only available for Los Angeles? We can ship the tests out, and if there's a doctor to supervise the sampling, they can do the tests remotely and then mail them back. It's just going to take longer. You've got to deal with the mail delays. So we feel we're most effective if we're working locally, because you could just drive the tests back to the lab in Santa Monica, and we could turn them around faster that way. So that's why we think we're more, more useful locally.
1: What is Mirakind's timeline for getting this out to the essential workers in Los Angeles?
3: Locally, we're looking to send our first batch of sample kits out to the Brentwood Health Center to test their staff and some of their new patients for COVID-19 and and be able to turn those results around by the next day and be able to help that facility manage their, their staff and their patients better. So we're really excited to be able to offer accurate, fast PCR testing here in Los Angeles, testing our essential workforce grocery store clerks, nurses, and letting them know if they're non symptomatic positives and helping crush the curve here in locally in Southern California. If you want to help donate to pay for those kits so that we can make those available free to essential workers, you can go to 330 million milliontestsorg And it's $150 a test. And we're looking for donors and philanthropists who can help us make a difference here locally.
1: Loretta Whitesides on Mirakind and how they're helping to test the essential workforce in Los Angeles to slow the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Due to SARS-CoV-2, we've seen a lot of virtual collaboration, but unfortunately, there's some research work that can't be done from home. They require a lab. Dr. Addison Colleen Stark is here to talk about how and when we are able to return to work, investing in national research can help the economy recover. Listen to this you wrote an op-ed for a scientific american about how investing in innovation could lead to a robust recovery and one of the challenges that's been presented by this period of social distancing is how it affects collaborative research research that can't really be done from home can you speak to that a little bit
2: Brittany, that's exactly right. One of the challenges with social distancing is the fact that we cannot be together and we cannot work together. And while this has been readily apparent across the full economy, one thing that people have not really reported on at length is the fact that this is also directly affecting our scientific research and innovation enterprise in the U.S. So I start out in that op-ed pointing out that in 1665, Sir Isaac Newton had spent his time during quarantine or social distancing where he was able to do such things as discover the laws of gravity and start to lay the foundations of differential calculus. But science has changed over the past 400 years. We're no longer in a place where individual work and individual contributions can be so earth-shattering and really move forward the state of knowledge. today. Science is done through large, robust international collaborations. If you look at things like the Large Hadron Collider or the work that's being done on trying to develop fusion at ITER, these are multi-institutional, thousands of people, and traveling from around the globe to do centralized experiments. Also, a lot of work at the smaller scales and continuing on our U.S. research program is done at universities where, as we've seen, students have been sent home. And it's not just undergraduate students, but it's also graduate students who are really the frontline workers in the research enterprise. And so what we're seeing is not only has our broad-based economy ground to a halt, but in particular, innovation has as well. And while there is still some hope that through directed recovery and stimulus, we can get the economy going again. One challenge is the fact that the impacts of not doing research and innovation can play out over decades because it's innovation that's done today, scientific discoveries today, that lead to the formation of companies tomorrow that then can be the industries that are a major part of our economy in a decade or so. So this could be a big economic challenge.
1: So then what do you see as a solution for this? Because we're looking at being potentially being socially distanced for quite some time. But until we start to see that curve substantially flattening, what do you think the government in particular should do?
2: That's a good point. So while we do see right now that there is no active non-essential research, and one thing I should point out is right now the U.S., research enterprise has shifted a lot of priorities towards directly doing work that can help to address the COVID-19 crisis. So you see the stories of laboratories are donating personal protective equipment, PPE, essential equipment for doing RNA sequencing. So essential equipment for perhaps it would be microbiological research is now being used to run tests at hospitals. Also, you've seen that the U.S. Department of Energy has focused on shifting and making sure they maintain and keep open their user facilities at the national labs that can be used for COVID response and being able to more quickly find vaccination. However, one challenge is how do we know? Number one, when can we come back together as society and reopen the university labs? You know, that's going to be an issue of how quickly can we get testing. And I know that these are a lot of the questions that people are addressing. But fundamentally, we're going to need a large economic stimulus that, number one, is spread across the economy. Yes, we're going to need shovel ready projects and projects that can be built to create jobs. But also, we should have a large investment. In innovation as well. And this would be through a large stimulus funding that can go through the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, the US Department of Energy and other agencies across the federal government that are already set up to disperse and spend money on research and development.
1: You talked about in the op ed about the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Is that something that you're thinking? And it
2: So a decade ago, we did go through the Great Recession. And as part of that, there was a large stimulus bill passed, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the ARRA 2009 Recovery Act, that did invest broadly in innovation. There was a bump in NIH and DOE and NSF funding. And in particular, at DOE, there was a large bump in funding that did things like create the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, or arpa where I used to work. Also, money was used through the Loan Programs Office to demonstrate new technologies. So in particular, through investments in the 2009 Recovery Act, we were able to demonstrate utility-scale solar PV technology. So prior to the Recovery Act, there was no solar installations larger than 200 megawatts. It was just something that was not done, and there was a lot of technological and commercial risk around that. However, through this projects that were funded in the Recovery Act, we were able to show that large-scale solar could be commercially profitable and actually led to the development and further advancement of what is today one of the fastest growing sectors in the U.S. economy, in the clean energy economy, and has proven that we can build and deploy solar at scale. That was an important thing we were able to prove. So there is a model that we can look back at, learn lessons from what was successful and not so successful. There were some challenges in demonstrating carbon capture technology during that time. However, this time is different because it's not just the fact that we need to restart the economy. But in 2009, we never stopped doing collaborative research. There was never a cessation of collaborative in-person experimental work. And it will take quite a bit of investment to get the machines of our U.S. research enterprise moving again. The COVID-19 public health crisis has impacted the economy in so many different ways. Today, we see the record number of layoffs and unemployment claims being larger than anything we've seen before. One thing that's been underreported is the fact that The impact on the U.S. innovation ecosystem is equally huge, and that's something that could play out over decades if we don't make a big investment to get that machine going again.
1: That was Dr. Addison Colleen Stark talking about the need to invest in innovation to help with the post-pandemic recovery. We've covered a lot regarding SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 and how contact tracing is a way to help flatten the curve and how robust testing will help with that and how companies like Mirakind are helping to test the essential workforce here in Los Angeles. We'll get through this. Another important topic we didn't get to cover this week is the Earn It Act. Organizations like the ACLU and EFF consider it to be a threat to freedom of speech, security online, and to encryption. You can find out more about it at act.eff.org. That's it for Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org. Click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at digitalvradio or find us at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to our contributors, Dr. Peter Eckersley and Dr. Addison Colleen Stark kpfk is a hundred percent listener sponsored you can donate now and keep glorious independent listener sponsored radio going at kpfk just go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge
0: thanks for listening to digital village i'm rick allen and
1: we'll see you online